Hello listeners and welcome to this special Unions 21 bite-sized masterclass podcast. This podcast is supported by the University of Sheffield's Political Economy Research Institute, better known as Sperry, and Open Democracy's Beyond Trafficking and Slavery Project. I'm Simon Sapper. I'm Becky Wright. And I'm Tom Hope from Sperry. This week's podcast bite-sized masterclass is presented by Claire Sullivan who's the director of employee relations for the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. Claire's talking about trade union governance which is a subject close to my heart because most people seem to forget that unions operate a profit and loss account and can go bust just as easily as any other business and I'm really interested to hear what she's got to say about how you order your governance to maximise your benefit. And the relationship between the governance and democracy I think is really important to think about in general. Absolutely, because because it's a membership-based organisation. The members must feel that they have a controlling interest in what's happening. And I think that's particularly important in a union which um, has such a high turnover of members, 25 to 30% every year. CSP has that degree of turnover? Wow, I didn't know that. Right, okay. Because I, I've always regarded them as being very stable, kind of cradle, cradle to grave. But I suppose if people are now falling out the end... Yeah. Um, hmm... Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to start with a few uh, facts about the CSP for people that aren't familiar with us as an organisation because it's relevant to what I'm going to say after that. So the Charter Society of Physiotherapy is a medium-sized union. We've got 57,000 members. There are a number of things about the CSP that on the surface of it will look as if we buck a number of trends. So we're in growth, and we've been in growth for the last quarter of a century consistently. We are dominated by women, although we've got more men in the organisation than we had in the past, but we still have nearly 80% female membership. Over half our members work part-time at some point or often for most of their careers. Uh, 96% of our membership is educated to higher education level or higher. We have a membership density of 95%. We have, and this is, this is where it starts to get to be less good news, physiotherapy is extremely white. 84% of the profession identifies themselves as white. And 70% of our working membership is in the public sector. And we organise almost entirely in one industrial sector, which is obviously health. Now, all those things have a number of upsides. So the first upside is the CSP, in effect, operates like an old-style closed shop. There is very little, I'm amongst friends so I can say this, there is very little real competition for physiotherapists in membership. We're a vertically organised sort of cradle-to-grave organisation. We're both a trade union and a professional body. We are therefore the voice of UK physiotherapy with very little challenge to that. And we have, as a result of that, an exceptionally strong brand. And there'll be others of you in the room that have that as well in your own sectors or parts of sectors. We are, like the profession, we have a very high profile of women officials, both lay and paid, including the, the fact that three out of the five members of the CSP's leadership team are both women, and in fact all of us are also by background physiotherapists. That means that we spend very little of our resource and time on recruiting members, and I'll come to why that's both a good thing and a bad thing in a minute. And unlike many unions, our membership is very young. 
In fact, two-thirds of our people working in the NHS are under 40. We have 1,200 union reps. That means we have a rep for every 25 members on the ground, which is fantastic, but that is almost entirely focused in the public sector. We also have the benefit of the fact that Agenda for Change, the pay and grading system for the health service, not only actually sets the rate of pay for the public sector, it sets the rate for the job for physiotherapy wherever it is. And of course in health we have virtually 100% coverage of both recognition where relevant and collective bargaining. And I'll come on to why that can be a problem as well as, a, an, as an asset. So what are the downsides? Well, the biggest downside is that people join the CSP because it just goes with the job. They do it without thinking about it. That gives us a very high membership density, but it does mean that only a very small percentage of our members have that moment when they do make an active, proactive choice to join a trade union. And that means we have to be very clear and very careful about what our messaging is around that. And that is, to, to be honest, I'll come on to why a problem. I think the other question we have to ask ourselves is that what does that say about the sustainability of our membership growth? Because you could argue that growth of the CSP is inextricably linked with public policy uh, over the last 25 years, rather than about active choices. The fact that we have a very young and very mobile membership also gives us challenges with our reps because we have a turnover of annual turnover of reps of between 25 and 30%, and that has significant implications for the amount we invest in them. We also have a very disparate membership in terms of where they work. And I'll give you an example. Our roughly 28,000 people working in the NHS in England work in 3,000 different workplaces, which gives us organising challenges. We also need to think about how responsive we could be if rapid policy change meant that a lot of people currently working in the public sector were then working in the private sector. Because our ability to grow activism and achieve recognition outside of the public sector is largely untested. The other thing I think we need to think about is that 100% that coverage of both recognition and collective bargaining means that you hide reductions in membership without even realising they're there. And I think across the public sector that is a problem. So I want to talk a bit about what we've done in responding to some of these challenges. And some of them come from the top and some of them come from the bottom. And this is part of us trying to do uh, going from geek to norm. I often talk about unions need to be one of the cool kids. I'm kind of working on the basis that I'm 54 and I'm already two decades too old to get away with saying cool. But I think, I think you know what I mean. So the first thing we've done is looked internally at our governance. Governance is not a sexy thing in trade unions, but it is incredibly important. And like Prospect, we have been through a painful process of change and renewal. Uh, and we're just on the brink of seeing how well the new governance arrangements serve us. So in the last year, we have gone through a process, a member-led process, uh, which is a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas, so well done them for doing it when push came to shove, where we've reduced the size of our elected ruling council from 27 to 12. We've moved away from a representative model based on both geography and sector within health to a leadership model. So everyone who is elected is nationally elected and everyone is there to represent everyone. 
We've improved the training of our lay leaders so that all of them have a minimum two-day induction into what it means to be governing the CSP. And we have limited terms of office to two elected terms, two elected terms of four years each. We, one of our straplines during our governance review, and it was a great one, was that we found when we started looking at the CSP had more committees than FIFA, and we reduced those 47 committees to three. We've also started a leadership development programme, and this is primarily focused not on trade union leadership, actually, but on leadership of the profession. And when we started looking into why people working out in the NHS found it difficult to advocate for physiotherapy with the people with the money, the commissioners in the NHS, most of them who were able to do it were asked where they felt they'd got their leadership skills from. And almost without exception, the most common answer was that they'd been a workplace steward and they'd attended the CFP steward induction course. So we thought we were doing pretty well in terms of uh, trade union leadership. We've also developed bespoke training because it builds a brand that people felt they weren't getting from trade union training shared with other people. It's something I'm very much in two minds about. I think there are great benefits of bringing people together across unions, across sectors, but it just wasn't working for us in terms of getting our reps trained. So we have a four-day induction course for our stewards and two days for safety reps. We do supplement it talking about digital means uh, with what we call our e-bytes program, which are incredibly popular. And and we also identify buddies, mentors or coaches, depending on what's needed for all of our reps. And then we've started to think outside the box. And, and those people who've sat around the TC General Council table with me will have heard me say some of this before. But I have a really strong view that in unions at the moment, what we have to do is stop apologising for talking about the small things. So for many years, we've moved away from the traditional trade union aims from the early days of a day off at the weekend, a few more pennies in your pocket, to talking about really big, broad ideological issues around equality and fairness and so on. Those are really important, but we need, in, in, the, in the course of the years when we've done that, we've begun to apologise for the things that are more pragmatic and more prosaic. And in a time when we're in a very steep decline, we need to stop apologising for those things. So we've done some things that we would have thought unthinkable 10 years ago. So as well as having our stewards and safety reps, we now have something that we just call, for want of a better name, I'm sure there's a young person in the room that can come up with one, workplace contacts. So these people who are not ready to take on a full trade union role, but are happy to be a contact for us in the workplace. We've also introduced reps that don't have a direct trade union role because what we realise is that when physios and physio support workers working outside in the NHS look in to us at the CSP, they don't see something that's a professional body or a trade union, they just see the CSP and we have to stop making that distinction. We've also realised, and this has been a very big adjustment for me, that when we could not get people active and willing to do things locally, I had an absolute light bulb moment not long after I'd taken over in my current role when I realised that that was because we were trying to organise our members around the issues that we thought were important and not around the issues that they thought were important. So I spent 20 years coming back from meetings going, they won't stop talking to me about car parking. The world's falling down around our ears and they're still talking about car parking. And I'd experienced this right from when I was a rep myself in the 80s. 
And I finally realised that what I needed to do is understand that for the people in front of me, what they care about is car parking. And so we have started to organise people and help them get active around the issues they care about rather than the issues that we in the trade union movement think they should care about. And that is making a huge difference. And what we found is that you go and see a group of physios, they present as highly educated, highly articulate and highly confident, but what we found is they're confident only in a very narrow place, which is about delivering physiotherapy. And if you ask them to go and do something different, they're scared. So what we've started to do is say to people, what do you want to talk to us about? And what they usually say is, actually, we want to talk about physiotherapy. And we're going with the flow. And what we found is that we can get them engaged, confident, talking about physiotherapy, as an example. That means that next year, they are prepared to engage and be active and confident talking about pay. So I think that our key message with people at the moment is that trade unions actually have an enormous appeal to people of today. And we've spent a lot of us the last 20 years wondering how bad it has to get before people start banding together and fighting back. And every time we think we've got to that point, we've had to accept we're obviously not yet there. So while I think we have to continue to strive for what we all want as trade unionists, which is a better and fairer world of work, we also have a responsibility to our people to help them make the best of the world as it is, as well as the world we would like it to be. So I say to people that there are, uh, in both the physiotherapy profession and trade unions, two things that seem very opposing initially, but are actually very uniting. Because trade unions, of course, are both intensely practical in terms of what they can deliver for people. Help, advice, representation when you need it, more pounds in your pocket, another day's leave. But they also, of course, ideologically are highly romantic organisations because the ideals of trade unionism appeal to people in a way that gets them in the gut. I think there's room for us, particularly with young people, in appealing to people on both those levels. And I think we can do it. I think we have to use different things for different people. And I look forward to the rest of the discussion about how we're going to go about it. Thank you. All right, well, listen, Becky, you often mm. say on, the, on our podcast that, you, that you're the geeky one, but I, I thought that was brilliant. That was a great exp exposition about trade union governance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, governance doesn't necessarily have to be geeky. It can it's be true. very cool. Cool, hip and trendy. Cool, hip and trendy. Swedish almost. It's sweet, well, yeah. Uh, oh, look, I think the thing about what Claire was talking about, twofold things, the, the, the one thing about actually what is the size of an executive and how does it function because I think we have lots of um, national executives which are huge and it's totally, I understand why and I think, you know, that's absolutely fine. What it boils down to is does it function and does it represent? And that's what we need to think about. So in terms of running the union and having the governance of a union, kind of size matters in as much as making sure it gets the job done. That's absolutely right. And I, and I think it's... Um... 
it's really an issue in unions where which have been formed through mergers yeah. where you often see that kind of parallel structures have been retained in place for a period after that merger and it ends up being a kind of quite a complex governance structure and so what, what I, love that, is, I love that euphemism now what Claire's talking about in terms of reducing the number of committees from 47 to 3 I mean you know, that's that's impressive I mean yeah and and the proof is in do those three committees offer the same level of oversight direction and strategic direction because remember the committee the committee isn't about a managerial process it's about a governance process and so that's crucial for both the national executives and councils or whatever they're called in all the different unions uh, and presidents to kind of understand this role is not about managing the union it's about governing the union absolutely this podcast is one of a series of five bite-sized masterclasses from unions 21 supported by sperry and open democracy you can subscribe and rate the other episodes on podbean itunes and the podcasting platform of your choice you've been listening to me simon sapper me becky wright and me tom hunt Unions 21 Bite Size Masterclass Podcast has been supported by Sperry and Beyond Trafficking and Slavery on Open Democracy. Beyond Trafficking and Slavery is a platform working to explain how and why labour exploitation takes place, as well as what unions and other activists are doing to prevent it. Take a look at www.opendemocracy.net forward slash beyond slavery. This has been a Makes You Think production. <laughs>